0: Welcome to Life-Altering Events with Frank Sicari. When something positive or negative changes in our lives, we are basically at a fork in the road. Where does the next step take us? What do we do as reactions to something that has already happened? How do we prevent the negative aspects from happening again? Whether in business or personal parts of your life, you can get back on track. We'll talk about it today. Now, here is your host, Frank Sicari. Good
1: morning. I hope everyone's having a wonderful Tuesday. My name is Frank Sikari, and you're listening to Life-Altering Events on the VoiceAmerica.com Empowerment Channel. Now, since we started this show the last week in, in July, people have often asked me, Frank, what exactly is a life-altering event? And this is what I tell them. A life-altering event can be something we either choose or something that's thrust upon us that dramatically alters the trajectory of our life. Now everyone's had one of those aha moments or events that's changed their life for better or for worse. Now these life-altering events occur in every aspect of our professional and our personal life, and in the lives of our family. Now try as we may, it is impossible to completely separate the events of our personal life from events in our professional life. Believe me, I tried for years, and I failed miserably. What life-altering events does present us with, however, is an opportunity to seize the moment and make a difference in our life and the life of our loved ones. They're a fork in the road, and we have a choice. We can choose to fall apart, or we can choose to find the courage to pick up the pieces, deal with our grief, and start moving forward toward better times and better people. Please remember this. It is never too late to have the life that you want and you deserve. Now, as you listen to the show over the next coming months and weeks, and hopefully years, I urge you to think about participating in an upcoming show. If you have a life-altering event that could inspire others, visit the life-altering event page on voiceamerica.com, click on email the host, And tell me about this event that changed your life so drastically. How did you address it? Where are you now? And how it impacted your life? Now, we'll review your, your story for content. And if it fits well into the program, we'll contact you about using it in a future broadcast. Now, this show has been renewed for another 52 weeks. This is the first week of the 52. So thank you for all your support, for all the people who have listened around the world. But now more than ever, I need to hear from you. Let me help you share your story with the world. Now, today's life-altering event has to do with dealing with with nonprofits. Now, we all have our own favorite local nonprofit, and they are facing a number of challenges. A lot of local nonprofits failed during the last recession, and many more are going to fail this one. Now, is your nonprofit going to survive, your favorite nonprofit? And we all know nonprofits serve an important purpose. Most of them provide a safe haven for those in need. Most are staffed by people who have dedicated their lives to service, yet most nonprofits must change. Business as usual is failing. Most of the staff is underpaid. Turnover in the rank and file is so high that the system lacks continuity and consistency within the organization the best practices of yesterday are simply no longer effective now there are too many worthwhile community organizations com- community nonprofits that are struggling there's too much duplication of infrastructure that drains resources and prevents organizations from focusing on their mission there are too many gaps between the services for young people and families caught in the continuum of trauma to navigate. You can't expect these people to navigate all these options themselves. The challenges faced by many nonprofits are all interconnected. Many are rooted in trauma. For example, a young person who is confronted with violence in the home is statistically more likely to face drug and alcohol problems, truancy, and if she's a female, a teen pregnancy. Excellent nonprofits are addressing each of these challenges, but traditional way that they operate, they operate in silos. When they do cooperate, it tends to be ad hoc or one-off, and it's very difficult to coordinate youth and family and homeless uh, who are already burdened by the trauma, or they're forced to try to navigate a maze of separate organizations. This system is failing. It's just not working well. Let me give you an example. I was a corporate executive and a business owner for many, many years, and I was constantly approached by organizations asking for money. Now, each has a compelling story, and each story touched my heart. I heard about the process data, how many visits, how many phone calls, how many referrals, but very few approached me with outcome data. What I didn't hear was the actual results, such as the number of families that secured safe housing, or the number of children who advanced their reading or math skills, or the number of children who graduated from high school are now attending college. Funders want to know are these children and families ending up in a better place after all was said and done. Now the answer that I heard more times than not was we gave them all the services that we offer and then we gave them information on other places they can go for the next step in the process. Now, this method is simply treating the symptom and not the root cause. The maze is too hard to navigate, and too many people are falling through the cracks. Now, I don't live in a, in, in a panacea world. I know that no organization can do everything. What I am suggesting, however, is that organizations first work within the same basic environment and collapse. Let me back up here. What I'm suggesting is people who work in the same basic environments collaborate with each other. I'm suggesting you step out of your silos and stop replicating common administrative services. I'm suggesting we build bridges between nonprofits, business, and the governmental world. Now, this is far easier said than done, and finding a solution to this is way above my pay grade. So, I am pleased... Have as my guest Dr. Sarah McClellan, who has tremendous expertise in this area. Now, Dr. McClellan has 20 years of organizational development, management, and training experience. She is currently an assistant professor at California State University at Sacramento in the Department of Public Health and Administration. She is a trainer for state and local government nonprofit leaders. Sarah is committed to studying and implementing innovative ways, stakeholders, engagements, and communication practices that improve community health, education, and the economic outcomes. Now, Sarah earned her PhD in organizational communication at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and she has a master's in public administration from the University of Southern California. Dr. McCollin, welcome to Life-Altering Events. Uh, good morning, Frank. Now, Sarah, I've heard you talk about some common obstacles to successful collaboration. Would you explain what these obstacles are in basic terms?
2: Um, Absolutely. And I I just wanted to note one thing, and that's that I'm with the Sacramento Department of Public Policy and Administration, uh, not health. Uh, But Sac State does have a fabulous health policy program that's just getting off the ground. So I have to do a little plug and shout out to my colleagues over there. So in terms of common obstacles, one of the most fundamental problems I've seen and studied is the way that nonprofits and funders um, often have different conceptions of value. Uh, They have different incentives when they approach a public problem. Uh, For example, nonprofit leaders frequently focus first on building relationships and alleviating symptoms. You reference symptoms. Um, A lot of nonprofit leaders are really concerned with uh, easy and immediate pain points, whereas corporate donors and grant funders, they understandably want to start with the root cause and they want to address it as efficiently as possible. And all of this makes sense. Everyone's behaving rationally from their frame of reference. Uh, nonprofit leaders and workers, they often see and, and they live with this immediate pain and struggle on a daily basis. Uh, they may be the ones who are directly providing calm, safe spaces for children living with violence. These are the folks who give soup to someone who might have gone hungry last night or a soft bed to someone who slept on the floor. Uh, these are folks who may be holding a mother's hand after she's lost a child. When I directed a children's program in Northern California, I remember how hard it was to help translate this for our funders. Uh, We would give out blankets to children who were often shivering in homes with no heat. Uh, Even in California, we get snow. Uh, We arranged supervised visitation programs to help parents exchange children without violence in the middle of custody battles. Um, And and this honestly remains some of the most important work I've done. Uh, And yet it was a constant struggle to communicate these results to funders. Warmer children, they may still struggle with school and have learning disabilities, and the possibility of one less violent interaction, that's notoriously hard to measure. In my heart of hearts, I knew we were doing important work, but I didn't always have the tools or the language to explain that to funders. Uh, That's part of why I went on to study communication. And on the other hand, funders, they obviously have a real incentive to make sure that their funding has significant impact. They want to make sure people really learn how to fish rather than getting an occasional meal. I used to review grant applications for a state program, and it was frustrating for us to see nonprofits using Band-Aid after Band-Aid without closing the gaping wound. And as you pointed out, many nonprofits, they're elbowing each other out of the way to provide the same Band-Aids.
1: So, so Sarah, what needs to change? Is there, is there a better way um, to
2: change? Well, I think, Frank, this is where we need real systems change. Um, and, and I think first, we need to get unstuck together. Nonprofits and funders need to find ways to convince each other that addressing both symptoms and root causes matter. Um, here's where I, I think analogies can be helpful. Um, think of a home with a leaky roof. If we just use a bucket and some towels, uh, we'll clearly get soaked during the next storm. But if we wait for a sunny day to put on a shiny new roof, we might end up with a lot of mold and destruction in our home if we didn't have the resources, if we didn't have the buckets and the towels to address the symptoms. And I think about these buckets and towels and reporting back on that. That's often what funders think of as process data. But that's really important. Uh, Funders often focus on the shiny new roof and nonprofits focus on the buckets. And I would argue we need both. Until we have these conversations in productive ways, collaboration among nonprofits will only Go so far.
1: And what's interesting is there needs to be more and more collaboration between the government and between the private sector and with the nonprofits. Yet we live in a really highly divided world right now regarding all these social issues. What impact is all this division having in the high failure rates of nonprofits?
2: That's that's an excellent question. Uh, I I would suggest that social controversy is often at the heart of nonprofit failure as well. Uh, One role nonprofits play in society is we look to them to address problems that no one else has the stomach or the ability to address. In economic terms, these problems are they often represent externalities, such as alcohol or tobacco addiction, that come along with the consumption of these legal goods. In other words, corporations uh, profit from selling these products, but they typically don't profit from solving the addiction that might come as a byproduct. And this is where government agencies exist to address some of these problems. But much of this work is arguably underfunded and, and now being left for nonprofits. Other nonprofit works controversial because we have competing perspectives on the nature of public problems. For example, is teen pregnancy, is that a family or is that a community issue? Um, What assistance should we provide felons if we believe in rehabilitation? I share these examples because funders, they often ask me why nonprofits don't do more to fundraise in their own communities but these are complicated and controversial problems and they're not always easy to rally support for. It certainly isn't impossible, but I'll, I'll argue that campaigns to save kittens from war zones, those will always be easier to fund than programs that teach felons how to read.
1: <laughs> That's a real interesting point. It's Everyone is looking at it from their own basic self-interest and everybody wants it now. So in our world where everybody does want it now, right now, Explain the challenges surrounding the expectation of time.
2: I think I think this is a major obstacle that nonprofits and funders are experiencing. How they really approach time differently, and this is something that that I'm studying right now. Um, almost everyone working with or around nonprofits knows it takes time: time to collaborate, to innovate, uh, to implement new plans, and and then time to assess results. Research repeatedly shows it takes a minimum of four to five years to fully implement a major organizational change initiative, and that's often even before we get to assess it really well in its full form. Yet funders are often under pressure to show hard-hitting results within a year or two. On the government side, political leaders, they're anxious to show wins, uh, they're coming up to re-election campaigns, um, and they want uh, they want good optics, they want talking points. Uh, on the corporate side, funders are used to more targeted goals with fewer stakeholders and, and they typically have less public scrutiny, and they also have boards, they're itching for results. The ultimate goal is still efficiency and they, they want a return on investment. Yet nonprofit leaders, they often have to do the messy relationship building. They have to build capacity in high conflict environments uh, where service partners, recipients, they've often come to distrust the existing system. Um, and then nonprofit staff are often overwhelmed and overworked in these organizations. Uh, leaders need to build relationships they have to train volunteers and staff they have to improve their referral systems one thing that nonprofits do especially when they collaborate they often have to troubleshoot data sharing restrictions and this really takes time and and capacity it's it's a serious skill and some people might call this non-mission work it's not sexy frank it just it's it's not the exciting stuff but it matters and uh you know it matters but for most funders, it takes a lot of time and they may not always understand exactly what it takes.
1: We are coming up on a break here pretty s- shortly, and I don't want to get into this next topic. So um, we're going to take a break right here. You're listening to Life Altering Events. Uh, we have Dr. Sarah McClellan. She, we're going to talk about the challenges facing your favorite nonprofit and can your nonprofit survive. We'll be right back. Don't go away.
2: Out what makes the most successful people tick? Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
0: Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealtering events Radio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life-Altering Events Radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzaccari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. You are listening to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zaccari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to Radio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Well, we're back. Thank you for staying with us. We have Dr. Sarah McClellan on on the uh, line with us, Dr. McClellan is an expert in organizational development. She has been she is highly sought out by government entities and by nonprofits to help them with their organizational skills and to help them get past the challenges that are facing so many of the community nonprofits as they try to survive in the world today. Uh, we had just talked about the the inherent conflicts between the funder, what a funder wants, and the results that they want to see, and then the time it takes for an organization to build a staff, to build a governance, to build a program and processes, and it's going to take some time. And then you have the governmental side who is looking for the interest that they have, which tends to be more short-term. So there's this constant battle going on between the various organizations. So, Sarah, as we are talking here, is there any hope, For these nonprofits that are looking to cooperate, collaborate, given all the obstacles that you just described.
2: Absolutely, Frank. Uh, I I actually think these obstacles make it even more important that nonprofits learn to collaborate well. Um, But they need to collaborate not just with other nonprofits. Um, I, I do see more and more of that. I think nonprofits need to be able to collaborate effectively with funders and with universities and government agencies. And in in some ways, our systems have not been built for that. I also think nonprofits will do better at this when they get clear on their own aims and their reasons for collaborating. Not all collaborations equal. It's it's not a panacea. Collaboration is hard. It's messy work. And I hear uh, a lot of folks talking about collective impact and collaboration in the abstract. Not so many talking about the actual practices and the the challenges, the costs of collaboration.
1: I've heard you talk in meetings and you've talked about there's weak collaboration versus the high degree of collaboration. Can you elaborate for that for the listeners? What does that mean?
2: Yeah, so weak collaboration tends to be easier. This is uh, about networking events. Uh, It's about professional learning, engaging in in shared learning communities, uh, perhaps sharing policies or advocating when we have common interests. And sometimes, uh, Frank, sometimes this is enough and and can be incredibly helpful. Uh, A higher degree of collaboration might involve pooling certain resources. So uh, we might share data systems uh, across two or three or four nonprofits Profits. Uh, we might agree to common metrics. Uh, we're seeing a lot of that around collective impact, where organizations come together and they may have many, many metrics they aim for, but they they identify some really important those key performance indicators where they their interests overlap. Uh, this can be exciting, but it requires skill and, and time to do it well, um, and an even higher degree of collaboration might involve the merging or disbanding of nonprofit organizations, uh, or as you referenced earlier, the sharing of some of the backbone administrative systems. Uh, and and this might reduce duplication and and even sometimes reduce unhealthy competition. It also requires incredible communication strategy. Um, it, it requires nonprofits to have even stronger relationships and, and a willingness to talk openly uh, about interests and fears uh, as they look for ways to uh, cooperate and really merge activities. It also requires a willingness to engage in some conflict and, and that usually comes with this and then it means having intensely difficult conversations in some cases.
1: When you when you present this, I can imagine what some of the responses have been. I've been in some meetings with you and I've heard some of the responses. What kind of resistance are you receiving for these very important points that you just made that many people just, they don't want to hear this? So what do you tell them?
2: Well, you know, I, I want to step back a little bit first and think about what what is it that often is sort of driving or underlying this resistance. Um, in, in this show, uh, Frank, you focus on life-altering events. And I found that people often uh, come to the nonprofit world uh, or pursue Forming a nonprofit after they've experienced a life altering event. Uh, it may be an illness or another personal challenge um, or something that's happened to them or somebody they care about. And um, so a lot of people begin with an, an activist orientation. Uh, they start because they're desperate to address a problem. Uh, they put enormous energy into building something that matters um, and it really. For a lot of people, it becomes a part of their identity. It's not just about making a profit. It's about doing something to fix just a little part of what's broken in our world. When we ask nonprofit leaders or boards to partner or merge with other organizations or pursue someone else's mission, let's think about what we're really, really asking people to do at a, at a pretty deep, often emotional level. Um, we're asking them to give up something that, that's deeply personal, a, a cause, a commitment, uh, a real effort to make things better. Uh, this isn't, isn't just technical work. This is emotional and interpersonal work, and it takes time and a wide range of communication skills. Uh, I find it's about helping people believe they'll get more than they lose in the collaborative process um, for, for themselves and for the people that they're so committed to serving.
1: What I've seen is there's so many organizations that, that discover, wow, this isn't working, we, we, we need to collaborate. Uh, and then they jump into trying to force This collaboration or cooperation before they understand the importance of backbone backbone administrative services, which I hear you talk about all the time in governance and process. How do you explain this to organizations who who are are almost in a panic? They say, Dr. McClellan, we're, we're floundering. Help us. We're trying to link these organizations together.
2: Well, it's as difficult as it can be, I, I, I understand many of these organizations are are they're anxious. As you say, they may be floundering. They're struggling to, to do things fast enough in today's world. But I really do encourage uh, organizations and partners I work with to um, take a step back and really get clear on the degree of collaboration they're looking for and the resources it's likely to really take before they convene potential partners. Uh, Ideally, a convening organization helps to establish the expectations and the parameters for this process, uh, at least in draft form. Um, And that means being clear what's the ultimate purpose of this collaboration. Uh, What are just a few shared objectives is the focus primarily about shared service delivery or are they really looking to those backbone service improvements uh, or perhaps doing some of both? And that can be a really heavy undertaking. I typically recommend beginning with pilot projects. Uh, nonprofits already work under a lot of pressure. If they take on too many initiatives at once, uh, they're likely to struggle and, and they lose partner trust or fail to achieve those small wins that, that matter so much in terms of building momentum. And I, I do want to note, that doesn't mean beginning with a modest mission. Uh, sometimes people hear me say that, and they say, but, but we're doing such important work. Um, and I, I would suggest a number of highly successful conveners have started with audacious missions. One of the best examples I can think of is Best Friends Animal Society. Their mission is to save them all. They implement no-kill philosophies and practices, uh, first around the country, now around the world. But they move in an aspirational direction. Rather than shaming or excluding organizations that can't immediately move to achieve this goal, they've focused on creative strategies and data sharing through increasingly vast networks of organizations across the country and around the world. Each year, they get closer to meeting this goal, even though not all partners collaborate at the same level or to the same degree. Um, They've really found a way of, of letting people come to the table and engage in radically different ways.
1: So it sounds like it's, it's really coming down to dialogue. Now, we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, Nicole Bendeley, who is a, uh, uh, the president of K&Co, and, and her organization focuses on, on building, um, not team building, but team work. And one of the things she talks about is there's dialogue and there's discussion. And discussion is, I'm trying to convince you of my point, And dialogue is, let's understand each other. How is this working in the nonprofit world, the the issue between dialogue versus discussion?
2: That's a a great question, Frank, and and one of the things that I see is that um, we often don't take the, the time to differentiate whether we want or need dialogue in a particular context or whether discussion or debate are the right approach. Um, and so, uh, I think nonprofit leaders have an opportunity to figure out as they sit down at a meeting table or work together, are we really seeking to understand and engage in, in dialogue or do we have tough decisions to make and sometimes we need to engage in discussion and debate or some form of decision making. Um, so, I think first just differentiating um, those approaches really matters. Um, and, and so… I think also it's important that the partners get better at understanding the incentives that drive funder behavior um, and for funders to understand the incentives that drive uh, nonprofit behavior. So I would really expand the circle to make sure that that all of the key partners are involved in this dialogue. Um, it also means getting better at, at telling stories. So I think in, in some cases, it's not just dialogue, but it's about stories and analogies that help funders, for example, see how backbone improvements strengthen critical service um, you know, nonprofits, uh, we, we often wouldn't think of, of funding or budgets as something that relates to dialogue or storytelling. Um, but I, I absolutely think these are, are still communicative processes. And nonprofits often do things like lump the dreaded administrative service requests into these vague categories with bureaucratic names. And that's where I recommend being, that they be really explicit uh, about what these funds provide, that they have conversations with funders wherever they're able to. Uh, about what do they really mean when they say we need administrative funds or backbone support services is this about critical research and development on a particular community need um, are they talking about volunteer recruitment and training and what does that look like what does it accomplish um, and I think of it in a lot of ways whenever we come together for for dialogue it's about adult learning and part of what happens is the current process it it often because uh, nonprofits go after funds through through big grants where RFPs, um, that structure makes it difficult for funders and nonprofits to sit at the table and just have a conversation about the problem, how they define the problem, about the kinds of opportunities and constraints that nonprofits face on a daily basis, and and what motivates funders to engage. And so, I think just having these conversations is a critical place to start. I've been
1: in, uh, and you also been into a, a number of meetings and conferences, and. What most people seem to take away is not the statistics and not all the data. They remember the story. And I've heard you talk about the story so many times. Elaborate a little bit more on that. Telling the story.
2: Absolutely. I I think, you know, we talk about strategic plans and and all of the business, the operational terms, and and I think it is important. We may talk about this now or in a future show about the importance of of nonprofit leaders uh, having strong business instincts and being able to craft plans. But a big part of what helps people connect to nonprofit work, that's the story that represents why Why is this nonprofit doing what it does? Why, what is its origin story? Uh, where, do, where did they, they come from? Who are the people that they're serving? What are the stories that those people um, experience to represent when, when they get the kind of support that makes a difference in their lives? Um, it's the kind of stories you might talk about on life-altering events and can nonprofit leaders um do more to make those stories real and visible. Um, I have a, a colleague who uh, does video storytelling for uh, around anti recidivism efforts. So they work with people who've been in the correctional system, who've come out and gotten job retraining. And so rather than just um, providing spreadsheets and, and numbers to show what progress has been made. Um, they go in and, and he works with with these individuals to learn how to tell um, video stories of their lives, to engage in, in video and podcast where they get to actively capture what the nonprofit work has meant to them and what their job training, what their support, the wraparound services looks like in their lives. And so I think that's part of the powerful storytelling is that yes, we need the data. We need the hard numbers. We also need to put the human stories with the focused work that nonprofits accomplish.
1: When you personalize um, the data and you show here's someone who's been through it, here's where they ended up, here's the challenges that they faced, it has such such a greater impact. And as a funder, as I've been a funder, that w- that's something that resonates better it's all right i see it now is that what you see
2: Ab- absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, most nonprofits have these stories. And, they, and I think sometimes what happens is that nonprofits think, well, uh, you know, funders just want the data. And, and often, again, that's because uh, especially they, they get used to working with structured grant processes and they have to fill in the forums and share the spreadsheets. And, and that's important. Um, but I think because many nonprofits live in this world where they're just reporting, reporting back data, um, they, they also miss opportunities to where they actually do get to include or sit down at the the table with funders and and help share these stories to make the data real.
1: From my life and in the in the business sector, I've been involved with a uh, a number of mergers and acquisitions. And the vast majority of these uh, or mergers between just two organizations fail. So how do you find common ground in your world where you're dealing with multiple organizations?
2: Well, it's, I, it is definitely a heavy lift, and there are a lot of reasons why I think organizational mergers fail, and people have have done good research on this uh, across sectors. Um, it, at its core, organizations often have different interests. They have different origin stories, different cultures, and, and different incentives, uh, financial and otherwise. Uh, I honestly doubt that mergers will become any more successful in the nonprofit world than they've been in the business world. What I do see is a chance for nonprofits to build trust and get better at sharing resources and knowledge. Um, This, I think, provides a foundation so that when an occasional window of opportunity emerges for deeper collaboration, including mergers, um, these kinds of options might end up on the table. For example, nonprofit leaders—they uh, may be in a place to actively look for an opportunity to partner or merge during an economic downturn. Um, we often don't like to think about it, but a recession will come, and what does that mean for nonprofits? And so, this may uh, provide an incentive for nonprofits to think carefully about merging, merging efforts in a way that they wouldn't have during a different period. Um, you also see that during major board transitions. Uh, I recently had a colleague who sits on on a board say, you know, uh, we're, we're, our whole board is about to turn over and I wonder whether we continue on as, as our own nonprofit. I'm hearing lots of organizations are doing similar work or at what point could we merge? And I got pretty excited because I thought, wow, they could come together and, and really build something strong in their transition, um, but it might mean they take a different shape. And so I think incentives change change during these periods and ideally some collaboratives they would also actively seek out and incubate innovative programs or initiatives. Um, And this might reduce the number of new startup nonprofits in the city or region. Uh, I work with graduate students who often get really excited about starting a nonprofit, uh, providing services um, where they're so needed. And I think many of them, what they really have is a program idea or an initiative idea, and they may not actually be in love with the idea of a board and all of the backbone administrative work that comes with that. Um, And so I think helping channel these energies into existing organizations and collectives, I think that makes a lot of sense. That's an
1: outstanding uh, explanation of, of the challenges. We're up against another break here. So we're going to come back in, in after a couple of minutes and continue this conversation with Dr. Sarah McClellan. We're going to get into some very interesting topics going forward. So you do not want to miss this last segment. Stay with us.
0: live up to your fullest potential this is the voice america empowerment channel book frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event frank is a dynamic entertaining and fascinating storyteller your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately email frank today to secure him for your next event and life altering events radio at gmail.com or call 916 718 5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life-Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today.
2: Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel.
0: You are listening to Life Altering Events with Frank Zaccari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to Radio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: And we're back. We are having an absolutely fantastic conversation with Dr. Sarah McClellan who is an associate professor at Cal State University Sacramento and is also a highly sought-after expert in advising local government and local community nonprofits on methods and governance and processes and how to survive because a lot of them are not going to survive this next recession. Now, just before the break, we were talking about the challenges of attempting to merge, and most business mergers fail, And when you're trying to merge multiple nonprofits together, it stands to reason that many of them are going to fail. Now, what I wanted to elaborate with Dr. McClellan here is what we have seen, she and I have seen, is that when an organization hits a panic or crisis, this is when they start to say, oh, well, maybe there's another way to do this or a better way to do this, rather than when times are good, be looking for different ways to operate what do you tell people in that situation, Sarah?
2: Well, I, I think you've outlined um, the, the, the advice is implicit there in, in the sense that ideally we're, we're really looking for opportunities to get ourselves into a good position before crisis strikes. And so where, uh, for me, this shows up with a lot of the, the nonprofits I've worked with, um, it shows up in the area of, of planning and in funding strategy. And so I am... am Frequently, I encourage nonprofits to Get really clear that they have a, a gift during those good times, uh, where they they can really focus on clarifying their their mission and focus on high leverage outcomes and strategies, and take that time to figure out what are the real problems that they're trying to solve. And if they've had you know the notorious mission creep, if they've struggled uh, with staffing, it's it's a great time when when things look fairly rosy to take have those conversations and work for that that tighter focus um. At the same time, I think it's uh, one of the critical times to diversify funding strategy. And this, in in some ways, it's the obvious, but hard to implement advice. Uh, This is about don't don't put all your eggs in one basket. Look for funding sources across sectors. Uh, Don't rely on just grants or just local donations. Um, It's also a time, and and this um, seems sort of counterintuitive for some folks, I think, but it's the time to do worst-case scenario planning. When times are really great, this is the best time to say what happens if X goes wrong? Um, What happens when we hit the next recession? Um, How do we test our stability during these times that are are actually more stable um, by looking ahead to risk and and then asking those questions? uh, What will we do if we lose our biggest funder? Um, What will happen if the economy tanks? How will we respond to new competition in in the region? And uh, starting to map out strategies. And I know it's really hard to do. Again, it's kind of counterintuitive. We get excited. We like to focus on what's working. Um, but there's also a lot of value in taking the, the positive times to do the risk assessment and and respond to that.
1: Well, that's a very interesting point. One of the things that is a major deal breaker in the business world when they attempt to do a merger is a power struggle. Who has voting rights or who controls what area? which pushes the organization back into the silo. So now they're starting to build little empires again. How do you address this when you're talking to people?
2: That's, so that's, I'd start with easier said than done. Uh, but I, I think one of the, the first recommendations um, is for organizations to um, really figure out again, ideally during during. Uh, good times when things are easier to really figure out how they will go about dealing with conflict when it surfaces. Um, This is about clarifying expectations and roles in many cases, but it's also talking about, hey, what do we do when X starts to happen? Again, it's a bit of a a risk management strategy around communication. So I know we look across the table at each other today and we're feeling great, um, but the next time we hit uh, a major issue we can't agree on or the next time we think that somebody gone behind somebody's back or taken funding that we agreed they wouldn't take or pursue. Um, how do we process that as an organization? And so it's about not just having the normal kinds of ground rules, but but having ground rules that point specifically to how we will address conflict when it emerges. And we, we can't plan for, for all such instances, but I think we can have some agreements that help.
1: One of our other guests a couple of weeks ago, uh, Sarah, had mentioned about meetings and the importance of meetings, and if you don't have a purpose in place, then don't have the meeting. And we've sat in a number of meetings where, wh- why are we here? How do you help uh, I, people in that?
2: I, I, I love that you've had a guest that has uh, shared that, because that is something I say over and over again. If, if you're not crystal clear on, on what you hope to achieve from this meeting, then my Goodness, there's got to be a better way to do this. So I, I really push folks, and and I'm not going to cite the author as I should, but there was a Harvard Business Review article a few years ago um, where they recommended something that I have found incredibly helpful to groups and in structuring meetings, and that is to take that, that typical, I call it a laundry list of meeting topics. Um, we often see a dump that you look at an agenda and it says staffing, budget, new grant, um, and, and Work backwards. Go back to questions. Formulate your agenda topics as very concrete questions. Um, and and sometimes what we do in that process is realize um, we don't actually know what we want to get out of this topic on funding, we haven't yet crafted a clear enough question for the group to digest it yet. Um, Or maybe we we draft that question and we say, well, what should staffing levels be for the next round of this program? And we realize we look at it and we say, we don't even have the right people at the table to answer that question. So in some ways it's about getting specific enough with how we frame our meetings and our meeting topics um, that we figure out who needs to be there, how the topic is actually best addressed and whether we should even be asking it yet at all, because we may or may not have enough clarity about what we're trying to accomplish.
1: I love that answer is, is that we've all sat through and all the listeners out there, you've all sat through meetings and you're, you're wondering, why am I here? What are we doing? We're not accomplishing anything. It's meetings are important if they have a purpose. Now, Sarah, one thing I've observed over the years, and many, many uh, community nonprofit leaders, they're wonderful people, they, they truly are, and they have that passion, or they have an event that you mentioned earlier, but very little have any business experience in, in creating and running a business and setting up a board and, and how to run an operation. Now, I understand you were just at a conference where these things were, were brought up. Um, would you share what that was about?
2: Um, yeah, Frank. I, I just had an opportunity to attend the annual Network of Schools of Public Policy Affairs and Administration conference in Los Angeles. It's a it's a mouthful. We call it NASPA, uh, and there were several panels focused on nonprofit strategy. And um, there were a number of big themes that that panelists and audience members were discussing. Uh, but um, chief among the among those themes uh, was was how can we help build the best, uh, strongest nonprofit uh, leadership. leadership. Leadership capacity and and what does this look like in terms of of two sort of delivery strategies? And one is can we be offering more targeted nonprofit degree and certification programs? Um, Should we be providing opportunities outside of or in addition to traditional management or public policy and administration degrees or certificates? and, and number two, what kinds of ongoing just in time professional development opportunities uh, can we help to craft in in uh, university environments and in other training delivery organizations? And I suspect we're going to see and hear a lot more about this over the upcoming years. Um, in the spirit of collaboration, I hope scholars and nonprofit practitioners find ways to work together closely to design and implement these educational experiences. I think too often, speaking of silos, uh, we design. Uh, great theoretical um, work and we do research in the university world but we we don't I think often enough reach out to practitioners uh, to test it and sort of tack back and forth and see is this the world you're actually experiencing and and what else would be helpful and likewise I think a lot of, uh, there are a lot of academic resources that that uh, nonprofits could reach out for uh, to help them think through uh, effective business practices uh, meaningful evaluation strategy, um, different ways of troubleshooting governance challenges. So, I think we could all be better partners for each other in addressing this issue you raise.
1: We've both seen uh, organizations go out and, and get somebody from, from a corporate world, from, and, and and they were very good at what they did in the corporate world, but they weren't the planner. They weren't the person who started it. And they come in with all this corporate knowledge, and there are clashes
2: <laughs> I'm I'm thinking of some of those clashes I've seen right now. So so Yes, I, I think some of it, it gets back to what we talked about earlier earlier in this show. And, and it's the idea that it's not just about different skill sets, um, but these folks have lived in in overlapping, but also in some ways, fundamentally different worlds, because you, you may have um, similar uh, characteristics where, yes, you're running an organization and you need to develop focused strategy and you need to develop funding plans and diversify your funding approach uh and you need to bring in stakeholders and you know so and, and run backbone management systems and so that's absolutely where business folks come with tremendous experience and i think have a lot to offer uh, you also, however, have very different needs on the nonprofit side that not all business folks have had experience with. And so there's, this there's, for example, uh, the fact that nonprofits often often have to respond to and build legitimacy with a really wide range of stakeholders. Um, nonprofits are often in a shared space with governments, with other nonprofits, with community members who are often struggling or angry and, and dealing with, with a lack of trust and in institutions. Um, And so nonprofits have to navigate that regularly in in meetings and in how they report out and engage the community. Um, You also have situations where uh, the kinds of reporting expectations from funders sometimes overwhelm and baffle even the sharpest business folks when they realize, oh, wow, you've got, you know, seven different funders, nine different funders, 20 different funders, and they all have different expectations and requirements. And this isn't efficient. But pretty quickly, business folks realize that that nonprofits can't always control the requests that funders make, and that's where I think we have a fabulous opportunity for those who come from the world of business and the nonprofits to then go back and be translators to their their business counterparts and say, "Hey, there are some things I'm learning here about what we do in the business community as funders, um, what impacts nonprofits, and how we might all work together a little bit more seamlessly."
1: Well, we are just about out of time. This has been just a tremendous show and episode. And uh, Dr. Sarah McClellan, is. uh, thank you very much for sharing this inspirational life-altering event story. Now, we've all had nonprofits that we've worked with and we've been part of or we have our favorite one. And things are going to have to change. So, if you are in a nonprofit or you're an organizer or you want to even think about starting a nonprofit, you need to listen to this show and you need to contact Dr. Sarah McClellan, and we'll see if we can put something together for you. If you want more information on how to get a hold of Dr. McClellan, send me an email at uh, uh, email the host and I will make sure it gets to her. Now, no matter what life throws at you, I want you to do three things. For all you listeners out there, I want you to look up, I want you to get up. And I want you to never, ever give up. Pick up the pieces and start moving forward. And better times and better people will come into your life. If you've missed any of this show or you want to hear any of our other shows, we will be available on demand at a number of different places at this site. Now we are also been picked up by iHeartRadio. So if you like listening to podcasts on on demand on iHeartRadio, that's a good place to go. Let me leave you with this. None of us are in this alone. The secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. And in the nonprofit world, Dr. Sarah McClellan knows where the rocks are. Join us next week as we discuss another life-altering event. Thank you very much. Sarah, you were wonderful.
2: Thank you, Frank. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Life-Altering Events. Be sure to join Frank Zakari again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a life-changing week. The good kind.